0: Well, turning your Bibles to John chapter 6, John chapter 6, this is our third week in John chapter 6, it won't be our last, as you can see from the title, part (laughs) 1. There's much to cover in here, and there's much we've been talking about, but for the sake of time, and and we need a lot of time today because there's a lot to cover, uh, I'll just sort of recap what's been taking place in chapter 6 after Jesus has miraculously fed a, a multitude of of people from five barley loaves and two fish, uh, they want to make him king. And instead, he sends his disciples away, and he sends them away. And all that all happens on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee in the region of Bethsaida. And in the middle of the night, his disciples are struggling at the oars of their small boat in the midst of the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus comes to them, walking on the water. That's what we looked at last week. And if you recall, John's record of the disciples' reaction to Jesus is very plain. It's very simple. They willingly received him into the boat. Really all the detail that we have, other than that they were afraid. The very next day, the crowd returns to the location of the previous miracle. They're looking for Jesus, perhaps another meal, miracle meal, um, but they can't find Jesus and it's a mystery because they had seen the disciples leave the day before, but Jesus wasn't with them. He did not get in the boat with them. And so they, they're at a, a quandary here. They can't figure out if there's no other boats there that Jesus could have used, and he didn't get in the boat with them. Where did he go? Uh, where is uh, Jesus? And other boats arrive from Tiberias, also perhaps looking for Jesus. And so the crowd gets into the boats, and they make their way to the western shore in those boats. And lo and behold, they find Jesus, probably teaching in the uh, uh, synagogue in Capernaum. And they ask him this question, you might remember, Rabbi, when would you come here? And Jesus doesn't answer the question. As he usually does, he just gets to the deeper issue of the sinful motives of their hearts. And he says um, something to them that's quite, quite interesting. He says, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. And that was in verse 26. And it was quite a different reaction than the reaction of his disciples who willingly received him. And we looked at that difference, that that the disciples were true disciples and that these were false disciples. They only sought him because they wanted more bread. And he tells them to stop working for the the physical things in this world, Stop, stop laboring for those things, and work for spiritual things. And he says that in verse 27, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. And they completely misunderstand Jesus. They assume he's telling them that they have to do some kind of work. You're missing some kind of work, some kind of good deed. You need to do a work. And so they say, so show us that work, right? It's the same question we ask. How do I get to heaven? What's the thing God is looking for? Uh, just like the rich young ruler coming to Jesus or the, the teacher of the law, right? Um, what good thing must I do to inherit the kingdom of God. And so that's what they're, they're looking for in verse 28. What shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus responds by telling them that there is a work. There's one work and it's a work of God. In verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. So Jesus is calling for belief. And that's where we ended last week. He's calling for belief. Why? Why don't they believe in him? Didn't they just see a, an amazing miracle, right? Feeding 5,000, well, 5,000 men, it says. There were women and children there too. They saw the signs. They wanted to make him king. Doesn't that show us that they believed? Well, as you see, you'll see today, they did not believe. And Jesus calls them out on that. And so here's the question. If if all the signs we've been looking at so far in the book of John, actually the feeding of the 5,000 and then walking on water make four and five. If those were meant to elicit belief, why didn't they work? If God has sent Jesus to do miraculous things and those miraculous things are to cause belief, how come they don't believe? What's wrong here? It, it, are Jesus' miracles faulty? Why don't they elicit belief? His miracles authenticate him and his message as being from God, but the signs and the miracles themselves don't bring salvation. You might remember, Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. Remember that. The Jews want a sign. Give us a sign. Show us something. And, they, and the Greeks, you know, prove it to me. You know? Help me to understand it, you know, intellectually. But that's not how it works. Belief doesn't ultimately come from signs. It doesn't ultimately come from Miracles. It doesn't come from philosophy or even persuasion. Well, the question is then <laughs> where, where does it come from? Well, that's the question that Jesus is going to answer today. And I pointed out last week that chapter six is a turning point, just like chapter five is. Chapter five, the religious rulers started to oppose Jesus. Chapter six, his own disciples will. Not the twelve, but those who follow them. In fact, at the end of the chapter, they turn back and follow him no more. What we're going to look at today, there are some difficult things. I'm just going to warn you ahead of time. There are things that Christians all through history have labored to understand. And I'm just going to do my best to be faithful to preach God's word. What I believe is saying here, I'm not trying to get my own opinion across. Um, My prayer is this, that you don't end up at the end like these disciples. Turn back and, and, and walk no more. So Jesus teaches these things, and the disciples of those days struggled. Jesus teaches these things today, and to be honest, we struggle. My, 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 my heart is this. Just let God's word be the teacher. Let him teach you today, and then see where you land there. So let's look at this. We're going to read the whole passage of verses 30 to verse 50. There's so much in here. That's why I'm splitting this in half, and we'll hardly get through this today starting in verse 30. Therefore, they said to him, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me that everyone who sees the son and believes in him may have everlasting life. And I will raise him up at the last day. The Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph whose father and mother we know. How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven. Jesus therefore answered and said to them, do not murmur among yourselves no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up for the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, And are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. God, we thank you for this tremendous passage before us today. And Lord, I realize there is so much here that we will struggle to understand. But God, we are hearing from you. And I just pray that you would help our ears to be wide open and our hearts to be open to what you want to show us today. Because God, Uh Jesus preaches some strong truths here that we must come to understand. And when we do, I believe we find true hope and true joy in that. So God, would you just go before us, teach us your word today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, let's jump into this. Now, remember, Jesus has just told the crowd that they have to do a work of God. um, And the work is to believe in him whom he sent. Believe in me, believe in the one who who they sent. So here's what the Jews do. They're going to request a couple of things of Jesus, okay? Here's our request, Jesus, verse 30. Therefore they said to him, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? (laughs) What work will you do? You want us to believe you? It's belief, okay, give us a sign. We want some proof. Now this is a graphic illustration of the unredeemed because Jesus has just given amazing proof of his deity, powerful proof through the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 just the day before. Yet they still demand more proof. The unredeemed will never be satisfied no matter how much evidence is given. That That is a fact. At the end, Jesus will be on the cross, and even then they will still be demanding for proof. Come down off the cross if you're the son of God, which would not have been any miracle at all. Because people still today to refute the resurrection say, oh, he probably didn't die. What would they be saying if he jumped off the cross? Well, he obviously didn't die. There's no miracle coming off the cross. Jesus stays on the cross to death to rise to give him a miracle. And they still don't believe it. See, man's order in our thinking is seeing is believing. I must see first and I will believe. But history tells us and mankind's heart tells us that that's not true. You can see everything and you still won't believe case in point with these people. But God's order is this. Believing is seeing. That's his order. It's not seeing is believing. Believing is seeing. That's why Jesus condemns those who seek after signs. You might remember this in Matthew chapter 12, verse 39. But he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet of Jonah. No, it's, it's someone who asks for a sign is showing their evil heart, their evil intent. It's showing a hardness of heart. <clears throat> show me another sign. Well, I'll show you a sign, but you're going to ask the same thing after I do that sign. Show me another sign. And that's what these people are doing. And so the crowd offers a suggestion for Jesus just in case he's not sure what kind of sign he should give because Jesus just you know, fed them with bread. Bread is on their minds. The Passover is on their minds. As you remember last week, the Passover is at hand. So unleavened bread is on their minds. Moses is on their minds because of the Passover. So they bring up the miracle of the manna, right? That's where they go. Look at verse 31. Our, our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it, is, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, what happened there? Is that what took place? Let's let's revisit that period of history. It's in Exodus chapter 16. So if you just turn there really quickly, um, we'll just read it briefly. Keep your marker in John chapter 6. We'll come back to it. Second book of the Bible, Genesis and then Exodus, go way back to the front and look at chapter 16. And we'll just read this little bit so we can get an idea of what they're talking about. Our fathers ate manna, I don't want to assume everyone knows what they're talking about here. Chapter 16, it begins in verse 12. We'll start there. I have heard the complaints of the children of Israel. This is God speaking. Speak to them, saying, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So it was that quails came up at evening and covered the camp, and in the morning the dew lay all around the camp. And when the layer of dew lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance as fine as frost on the ground. So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, this is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. Now skip to verse 35, the end of the account. It tells us this, and the children of Israel ate manna forty years Until they came to an inhabited land, they ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. So this is what they're referring to. Here's a miracle, Jesus. Here's one for you. Our fathers ate manna for 40 years. Moses fed them in the desert, they said. Do a bigger uh, miracle. Give us a better sign, right? That one was okay, but that was a one-off. Why do you try feeding me for 40 years? Our fathers got to do that. Do you see where they're going here? That's their suggestion to Jesus. And what's interesting, contemporary Jewish thought would have expected that the Messiah would do something like that. If Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah, then why not supply us with unending food? But it is not the, the magnitude of the sign that will generate belief. They're saying that, but that won't generate belief. It's the perception of its significance that generates belief. It's not the magnitude. You might remember Jesus tells this amazing parable in Luke chapter 16. You have a poor man named Lazarus and a rich man. Poor man's a beggar, right? They both die, and Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom. He goes to heaven, and the other man goes to Hades awaiting judgment. And they can see each other. And there's a great divide that separates them. And the man finally realizes his eternal destiny is separation and judgment. And so he says, go back to my family, right? Go back to them and tell them what awaits them. And, and this is what Abraham says to him. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham. But if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they persuaded though one rise from the dead. They have the scriptures, let them read that. He goes, oh, no, no, they won't believe that. But do a miracle, God. You know, send, send a, someone from the dead. They'll respond to that. No, they won't. It's not the magnitude of the miracle. But what is the significance of the miracle? And that's what the people had missed. They had missed the real significance of the manna. And Jesus is going to correct their, their, their misunderstanding of that. And that's what he does here in these next few verses. So let's look, look, let's look at this. He sets them straight here because they've got that part wrong. If they got that part wrong, they don't get this part at all. Then Jesus said to them in verse 32, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Who was it that gave them the manna in the wilderness? Moses? No, we just read it, right? God did it. Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. Moses didn't give them bread from heaven. He was only the relay guy. He went and gave them instructions, right, on how to gather it. Moses didn't provide them the bread. God did. And what was the bread for those people in that wilderness? Life. Life didn't come from Moses. Life came from God, the Father. He says, so you've got, you're way off. (laughs) You're never going to understand coming to me for the bread of life because you think you went to Moses. It was God who sustained you those forty years. God gave you that bread, and that bread was life. So they had that wrong. Secondly, was the man a true bread from heaven? True bread from heaven? Well, no. Here's why. John uses this word "true." By the way, you've probably noticed it a few times more than any other New Testament writer, all through this gospel and in the book of Revelation. It's "alethenos" and it means genuine, okay, true. And so far in the, in the in the gospel. We've seen him use it of Jesus as Jesus as the true light. You might remember that back in chapter one. He's also used it as Jesus as, uh, used it of worshipers as true worshipers, genuine worshipers in chapter four. But here John uses it to describe the true bread. Yes, the manna of the, the past was truly supplied by God. That, that part is true. But it wasn't true bread. It was a, a type, and it foreshadowed the ultimate bread that would come. Um, Think about this. Those that ate that bread in the wilderness, what happened to them ultimately? They all died, right? All of them died. In fact, Jesus says that in this passage. It sustained them during those 40 years, but it did nothing to bring everlasting life. It was all about providing physical, temporary life. In addition to that, and this is what is amazing, many of those that ate that bread in the wilderness were not believers, Think about the history of Israel after this point. What kind of things did the Israelites do after God was supplying manna? Oh, they made a golden calf and began to worship it. They complained all the time about this lousy bread that God gives them to eat, right? They rebelled against Moses and Aaron at the uh, Korah's rebellion. God had to open up the earth and swallow those guys, right? They refused to go into the promised land. We don't trust God enough. We're not going to go in there and conquer that. So they go and commit harlotry with the people of Moab, the women of Moab, and start worshiping their false idols. All of that's happening while they're eating God's manna. So let me ask you this. Did it elicit belief? Did that miracle bread from God have anything to do with belief? No. So you see, the, the, the Jews have it completely wrong. Oh, do a miracle like that. We'll, we'll believe just like our fathers. Oh, hold on a second. Your fathers didn't believe. It has nothing to do with belief. It had to do with just sustaining them. They're completely wrong. And then he goes, he can correct two more things in verse 33, those two things in verse 32, but now verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The bread of God is the one that gives spiritual life, life. John, again, is the one that's been using this word life, Zoe, 47 times he uses it in this gospel. And every single time he uses it, it's in the context of eternal life spiritual life. It's never used in the context of physical life. So the bread of God gives spiritual life. The manna from heaven allowed them to live, but the true bread from heaven gives life. See, sin cuts mankind off from God, just like that parable Jesus told, right? There's a divide. It cuts mankind off from God and God is life. So man has no way to get life from God. That's the whole picture here. Instead, they're going to die. They're going to die physically. They're going to die spiritually because they have no way to get life. So how will they get life? Well, Jesus told us in chapter 5, verse 26 already, if you want to look at that again, as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son to have life in himself. So if mankind is here and God is here and they can't get to God to get life, how does mankind get life? Jesus has life in himself and Jesus comes to man. There you have it. So how do you get that life? If Jesus is there with them, he's standing before them, he's saying, well, I am life. How do they get it? Belief. Belief. And that's what we've seen the theme of of John being thus far. And I just want to really quickly recap what we've seen thus far in John. Just go back to chapter 1, verse 12, just in terms of belief. It's a massive theme. We can't look at everything he's talked about, but look at John 1, 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name, right? So there it is. Jesus is saying you've got to believe in him. In John chapter 3, Jesus is speaking to uh, Nicodemus, the religious leader, the Pharisee. And look at verses 14 to 18, kind of a big section here. But he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, speaking about his crucifixion, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And then in chapter 5, verse 24, and we res- revisited this verse last week. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. It's all about belief. Jesus has been preaching that. That's been the constant theme here. The people don't have it. So Jesus has to correct the faulty thinking about this this bread, this, this manna. In addition, this manna was only given to Israel, the one they're talking about, the manna in the wilderness. Only Israel received that bread. But Jesus said, this is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the whole world. So they're completely off. They think that, that he has to do a, a, a bigger miracle. It's already been done. This has already been done. <laughs> this is a bigger miracle. You know, that, that didn't elicit any belief in there. Jesus is talking about something far superior to the manna in the wilderness. That was their first request. Didn't go so good so far. Look at their second request in verse 34. Then they said to him, okay, Lord, give us this bread always. That sounds good, right? Okay. We believe you. Is it belief? Give us this bread always. Evermore is the word. We want that all the time. All right. Right. We want something bigger and better. They they got the manna for 40 years. Well, give us this bread you're talking about. Uh, Give it to us all the time. All this does is further reveal their spiritual blindness because they're still talking about bread. They still don't get it. And so Jesus has to declare it as plainly and unambiguously as possible. And that's why we have verse 35. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. I am the bread. You're not getting this. So let me just, I am the bread of life. And he who comes to me shall never hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. Now, first, this is the first of of seven very significant I am statements. I know a lot of you know about the I am statements, but this is the first one we come to in the book of John. They're they're massive, of massive importance and usually come to us of great uh, theological importance as well. But Jesus is going to use uh, I am to describe himself as several other things as we go through the the book of john the light of the world the door of the sheep the good shepherd the resurrection in the life the way the truth and the life and even the good vine the true vine so jesus this whole time he's been talking about bread has been referring to who himself right he's been referring to himself now we all knew that right we all knew it and we were looking at this crowd of people going these people are daft how how are they how are they missing missing this but listen this is exactly the response of those who want their, their physical needs met. There's a lot of churches today packed with people, packed with people who are looking for Jesus just to meet their, meet their needs, give them their desires, right? Get, give us what we want. And there's always going to be churches to accommodate them. They'll have the largest crowds, but probably have the lowest percentage of true believers. True believers are those who come to Jesus And believe. And I want you to notice those two words that Jesus used. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Another way to say this would be repentance and faith. Repent and believe. John doesn't use the word repentance in the gospel here, but the concept is certainly applied here when we speak of coming to Christ. Repentance and faith are really two sides of the same coin. We must must repent, turn away from our sin and believe and turn to the savior. That's what he's saying. Come to me and believe in me. And this crowd, have they exhibited belief? No. And Jesus says so in verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Do not believe. They don't see, he does not see belief there. And this is what's fascinating about this. They are living during a time of history where this bread from heaven is there standing before them, which is a greater miracle than the manna, okay? Standing before him. And the great wish of the Jewish people was that this would happen, this this moment. They desired for God to come to them. They they asked for that. Isaiah talked about that. I want you to see this because it's fascinating. In Isaiah chapter 64, go back to the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 64, this this is what Isaiah wished. When he understood his sinfulness and his inability to come to God and get life, he wished that God would come to him. Look at this. If you've never read this before, this is incredible. Isaiah 64, oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down. That's amazing. Oh, that you would just tear the heavens apart and come down here. I wish that would happen, Isaiah says. That the mountains might shake at your presence as fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries. That the nations may tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things for which we did not look, you came down. The mountains shook at your presence. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you who acts for the one who waits for him. You meet him who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. You are indeed angry, for we have sinned. In these ways we continue, and we need to be saved. It's incredible. I encourage you to read the rest of that. I won't for the, just the time today. I wish you would come down here. And show your splendor, show your glory, because we're sinful and we need to be saved. So they know they need that. And it's happened. Jesus is standing there before them. It's happened. What they've been wishing for has happened. What Isaiah wrote about has happened. He's there. And they don't see it. It's been fulfilled. God has come down from heaven. But not to provide physical food. But to atone for sins and provide spiritual life. And the crowd has not seen that, sadly. So they don't believe. Do you see? Seeing is not necessarily believing. So here's the big question then. If that doesn't lead to believing, what does? So here's the part you're going to have to buckle your seats in for, okay? If it was all about man's ability to believe, and here you have a giant crowd and they don't believe, that could be very discouraging. Jesus could be very discouraged right now and go, oh, wow, okay, none of you believe. I'm accomplishing nothing. But Jesus is not discouraged. So pay very close attention to what Jesus says here. Verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Now here is the other half of the coin in regards to salvation here um do you guys remember the teaching on the salvation uh, in chapter three with nicodemus he tells nicodemus who had done everything he could every possible work he could he could do right acts of the law observances of the sabbath and feasts and all those things and jesus doesn't even mention those he says you need to be born from above and the whole point was just as you have no part to play in your physical birth and you don't you you just, you're just you're spanked and then you're here, right? That's, that's what happens. You're smacked, right? You're here. You have no part to play in your spiritual birth. And the first half of that, he's telling Nicodemus, you need to be born from above. You need an act of God. But then what does he talk about in the second half? I just read most of it. Believe, 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 right? And I, I mentioned this This is as far as we went back then, but that there's these, these two sort of things that, that go back and forth in Scripture, You can't deny that they exist because they're there. And Jesus does it here all through the passage. There is, there's man's responsibility to believe, but there's divine sovereignty involved in that as well. An act of God. And so here we have this saying, all that the father gives me will come to me. What does that mean? What on earth is he talking about? Well, let's back up and look at everything he said so far. He who comes to me, and uh, believes repentance and faith right so man's responsibility is to repent and believe in acts chapter 17 verse 30 we could we could do a million verses we don't have time for that i'm just going to show you a few but acts chapter 17 verse 30 truly these times of ignorance god overlooked but now he commands all men everywhere to repent and we would all agree with that that's right man must repent we pray for people to repent we ask for people to repent absolutely people should repent We also tell people to believe. I mean, John 3:16 is probably the most famous one. We say that all the time. God's love of the world. Right? We we do that. I just read it. Here's another one though, Romans chapter 10, verse 13. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Right? There's repentance and belief. That's man's responsibility. But salvation is ultimately a work of God. And if you remember back in chapter one. Verse, um, verse 12, we just read a little bit ago. The very next verse, verse 13, says this. That we were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Just like Jesus talking about Nicodemus, you need to be born from above, you have no will. You have no say in that. I had no say in being born. And, and John has already told us this. It's the will of God. Paul writes in Romans chapter 9, verse 16, So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Interesting. So if we're looking at these things, it's about repentance, and it's about faith. Both of these are granted to us by God, according to Scripture. Look at Acts 11, verse 18. When they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. When the Jews heard that the Gentiles were coming to salvation, what was their fallback here? Well, God must have granted repentance to them. Not that they repented, God granted it to them. So repentance is granted by God, and faith is also granted to us. By God. Paul writes this in Philippians chapter one, verse twenty nine for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. I've heard lots of people talking about yes, it's God's will that you should suffer, but did you know that it's been granted to you to believe as well? That's what Paul says. Ephesians chapter two, eight, and nine, probably the most famous for this. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should and i know we usually look at that and say yeah grace grace is the gift grace is what is, is the gift there but the ability to believe the faith itself is also a gift because it's not of yourselves if it were you could pat your back and say well well done me and my faith and i would and you guys this has to be true otherwise a whole lot of other passages in scripture wouldn't be In Romans chapter 3, Paul tells us there's no one who does good. No one seeks after God. No one. No one. So how can I believe in him if I don't even seek after him? See, this is the interesting part. Both human responsibility, man's responsibility here, and divine sovereignty come together in this verse. Divine sovereignty. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And then look at human responsibility. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. how, How does that work? But listen, Jesus uses this as the explanation for their lack of faith, right? But you don't believe. You don't believe. So, oh, all hope is lost. No, it's not. The Father works sovereignly in people's lives. That's what Jesus has just said. All that the Father gives me are going to come to me, and then those ones who come to me, I will not cast away. That God is absolutely sovereign in salvation is, I think, foundational. And we're going to look at a few more scriptures here. Acts chapter 13, verse 48. Paul and Barnabas are preaching to the Gentiles. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Who believed? The ones that were appointed to eternal life. Paul writes also this in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 6. Charles read this, I heard a whole bunch of amens, but I don't know if you noticed everything that's in this passage. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Having predestined us, to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, not mine, and to the praise of the glory of his grace, not mine, by which he made us accepted in the beloved, not me. That's a whole lot of him, and uh, uh, me, is, I'm very absent from that passage. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 to 14. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now I love this verse because it's all there where we're going is actually here because he's chosen you from the beginning for salvation. But look what's involved in here. There's sanctification, belief in the truth. He called you to this by what? The gospel. Hang on to that. We're going to come back to that. 2 Timothy 1.9. He was saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. If these things happened to you before time began, before the foundation of the world, what part did you play in that? I have to tell you, none. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Stick with me. Don't don't go away yet. Hang tight because we're going to come full around. We're going to come full around. Listen, listen. The truth is freeing. Trust me on that. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 30. We love to quote this verse. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, Right? We love to quote that when times are tough. Yes, everything's going to work out for the good, but do you understand what's being said here? Do you understand the context of what's being said? Yes, it works out for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. And then what is that? He goes on to explain it. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. Paul lays it out in the order that it happens. You have been predestined for salvation. So therefore he calls you, he draws you to himself, to use the words that Jesus does in this passage. He draws you to himself. And when you come to him, boom, you are justified because you have be- believed in the blood of the lamb, which is the only thing that can justify you and declare you not guilty. And because that has happened, you will be glorified. That is, that is it, it's all of it. And that's the gospel there. And from God's view and man's view, we have to look at these things. This is what we constantly see back and forth in Scripture. Because it's God's word, not man's word, right? So God has laid out these things so we can see it from both angles. In God's view, we're given over, we're we're given to to his son right, by his sovereign power. from, From God's view. From man's view, we come to Christ. Right? That's what we preach. Come to Christ. We preach, repent, come to Christ. Get your sins forgiven. I don't preach. God will just sovereignly do it. Hope that works out for you. We're not called to. We're called to believe. We're called to come. We're called to do these things. And listen, listen, the Lord will never reject those who truly come to him. Did you see that? I will by no means cast them out. Why? Because the reason they come to him is the will of the father. So don't escape these verses if you're having a hard time with this. He says, I will, not, I will not cast that person out. Why? Verse 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I'm here to accomplish the Father's will. Jesus has been saying that over and over and over again. So the reason he can know that those who truly come to him will not be cast away is because they come to him by the will of the Father, not their own. Do you see it? I hope you see that. That's not me. That's Jesus saying that. And what is the will of the father? Well, he spells it out for us. Look at verse 39. This is the will of the father who sent me that of all he has given me. I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. Everything God will give me. And I think he uses all as the, as the entire group, all those who have been, been sovereignly chosen there. I won't lose any of them because it's come from his will. Now, The will of the father is the guaranteed salvation of those who come to him. That's how it's guaranteed. If it was on my will, could you guarantee it? You couldn't guarantee it. I can't guarantee anything a man says pretty much, but you can guarantee it. If the father says it and he wills it, it's guaranteed of all he has given me. I should lose nothing. In fact, the promise is that I will raise it up in the last day. I don't know if you noticed when we read through this, Jesus repeats that promise four times in the passage. That means it's an ironclad guarantee of eternal salvation to all true believers. What that means is, I'll say it as clear as I can, you cannot lose your salvation. That's what that means. Why? Because it has come about by the will of the Father. If it came about by your will, then you haven't been saved. (laughs) <laughs> That's what I'm trying to say, right? That is, listen, we're going to get to this, but in John chapter 10, look at these, these, these verses, say it as clear as you can. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me, there it is again, is greater than all and no one is able to snatch it out of my father's hand. Do you see that? My father is greater than anyone, so I don't care how big your will is. His will is bigger. I don't care how powerful you are. His power is greater. No one can ever take them from me. Why? Because they come by the calling of the father. And that is absolutely foundational. God's sovereign work in salvation is what guarantees our future. Turn to one more passage. It's 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. If you don't think that your salvation is incorruptible and undefiled and there absolutely for you, kept for you, you've missed this passage. (laughs) Because for the elect of God, it is, it's secure, it's for you. We read Jude 24 as a benediction all the time. Steve has been up here a hundred times reading that benediction, and we'd love to hear it. I'll read it to you. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to God, our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forevermore. Amen. We love that passage. But have you considered how that whole letter opens? Look at chapter 1. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. So if you believe verses 24 and 25, you better believe verse 1. Right? You are called to him, and because of that, you're going to be sanctified, be made holy, and you will be preserved for eternal life. You can take it to the bank. But... Going back to our passage, but, and there is a but, the eternal security or preservation or perseverance of believers, however you like to say that, is never apart from personal repentance and faith. Say what again now? Well, look at verse 40. Look at verse 40. And this is the will of him who sent me. So there's a second will, verse 39. We saw the will, right? Right. But now here's, again, another will. This is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise them up at the last day. (laughs) This is incomprehensible, you guys. I'm just starting out. You can't, the, the interplay between divine sovereignty and human responsibility really seems impossible to harmonize. They seem like opposites to us. But there is no conflict in the mind of God because this is God's word. He uses both. And both are true. Both are true. It still comes down to you are responsible to come to believe. You are. You're called to that. You're called to that. And perhaps some of you were somewhat disturbed by some of what you heard today. You wouldn't be any different than the Jews of that day because they were disturbed as well. Because look at what happens in verse 41. The Jews then complained about him because he said, I'm the bread which came down from heaven. Uh, literally, they murmured. It's an onomatopoeia. It actually has the sound of them grumbling, murmuring. They were disturbed by it. In fact, they said in verse 42, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I've come down from heaven? So they're disturbed by two things. One, that he, he claimed to be the source of eternal life. I'm the bread of life. And he claimed to come down from heaven. And so they, they murmur, they complain. And I've always asked parents this, is said, you know, when your kids grumble and complain, and maybe we have a problem with grumbling and complaining, so maybe it's not just kids, but what is that a reflection of? It's a reflection of a discontent and rebellious heart because we're not satisfied with our lot in life. We think we're more worthy of something greater than God has given to us. So it shows a rebellious heart which is why we address the heart when we're dealing with kids in murmuring and complaining. Um, and that's why God was very upset when he heard, do I hear murmuring in the camp of the Israelites? He didn't like it. You complain about that manna? All right, let's see how you like quail coming out your nostrils, okay? So he, he, he doesn't like complaining. And look at Jesus' response uh, to the complaining. Jesus answered in verse 43, do not murmur among yourselves. Because it's, it's the human condition that's being represented here. Jesus tells them to cease complaining. And it really kind of makes the point, right? Here, stop it. This shows me your heart even more so. Look at verse 44 though. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. So here we have this rebellious group. They've just revealed their heart because they're murmuring and complaining. And he says, listen, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. This is man's default position It's the position these, this Jew, these Jews are in right now they're rebellious and they don't want to see the truth and they can't see the truth and that's mankind. The Bible indicates that sinful man is unable to come to Christ and you would have to get rid of a whole lot of scripture to to prove otherwise and you don't have time to write all these down I'm sure but I'm just going to give you some bullet points. the Bible says we're dead in sin ephesians two one and Colossians two thirteen we're dead the Bible says we're slaves. To unrighteousness in John 8 34, Romans 6 6, 17, and 20. We're alienated from God, um, Colossians 1 21. We're even a hostile to Him in Romans 5 10, and 8 7. We're spiritually blind, 2 Corinthians 4 4. We're captives. 2 Timothy 2.26, we're trapped in Satan's kingdom, Colossians 1.13, we're powerless to change our sinful nature, read Jeremiah 13.23 and Romans 5.6, we're unable to please God, Romans 8.8, 8. and we're incapable of understanding spiritual truth, 1 Corinthians 2.14, we can't come to Christ unless the Father draws us. We can't do it. So how does he do it? How does he do it? And this is where you get the relief, guys. You've stayed with me this far. Verse 45, it is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Jesus is paraphrasing Isaiah fifty-four, thirteen. We have to be taught by God. The teaching by God is the inner work that disposes people to accept the truth about Jesus and respond to him. How does that happen? How, how, where does that come from? And Paul revealed that to us in Romans chapter 10, verses 13 to 15. Look at this. For whoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And here's the answer. How they shall believe in him of whom they not heard. How they shall, they shall hear without a preacher. How shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. How does that happen? God needs to teach them. God does the work. How does that happen? Through his word. Through the proclamation of the gospel. Everyone who listens to and learns from God will come to and believe in Jesus. That's what that's that's saying. It's through the truth of his word that God draws people to embrace uh, his son. Remember, that parable of Jesus, or the, that Jesus told about Lazarus and the rich man, right? The rich man wanted a miracle, just to send someone back from the dead. But what did Abraham said? He said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. It's the word. So evangelism is still needed. Preaching the word is still needed. You are still needed. We're still needed. And this teaching of God is not some sort of mystical connection between uh, God and man here. God still comes to us only through Jesus because Jesus is the only one who has seen the father. And that's what verse 46 is about. Not that anyone has seen the father, except he who is from God, that's him. He has seen the father. Only Jesus can speak firsthand about the expectations of the father. He's the only one that knows him intimately. And finally, Jesus summarizes his teaching with these two verses. We'll wrap up here. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Remember, this is to be contrasted with that manna that was brought up by the people that kicked off this whole discussion to begin with. I'm the bread of life and if you believe in me, you'll have everlasting life. But contrast that in verse 49. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. Where are they today? It was miraculously provided by God to sustain life in the wilderness, but they came to loathe it and they ultimately died. It couldn't impart eternal life. But, verse 50, this is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. Jesus calls them to eat of the bread. The bread is Jesus. And next week, we're going to see what Jesus has to say about that. I'm going to close by reading 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we looked at briefly. I know we're over time here, but I do want to end with this. I read this passage about the um, Jews seek a sign and Greeks want want, um, wisdom, right? It says this, for Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But look what it says afterwards. But we preach Christ crucified. It's about preaching. And to the Jews, it's a stumbling block. To the Greeks, foolishness. Doesn't make sense. But to those who are called, called, both Jews and Greeks, christ the power of god and the wisdom of god why because the foolishness of god is wiser than men and the weakness of god is stronger than men if none of this makes sense to you good you're in the right place join the crowd because i can't mi- wrap my ra- mind around it because god is is greater than me his his foolishness his foolishness if he were foolish is is so much greater than my wisdom for you see your calling brethren That not many were wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? That no flesh should glory in his presence. It is all about God, you guys. And you know what? At the end of the day... I can just go to him and say, it was all you. I can't come up and go, I'm so glad I had me and my beautiful faith. And you know what? Also, it does make evangelism a whole lot easier. Because when I evangelize, I know that God is doing the work, not me. Because he is the one that draws people to himself. Here's what's great. It's not based upon eloquence. As you notice, not very eloquent. It's not based on my wisdom. Pretty simple guy, right? It's not based on... it's not right, my power, it's based on the Father's ability to draw people, and he can do it. So let that be refreshing to you. May you be encouraged. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word. What an incredible passage, Lord, before us today, and we're only halfway through. We just pray that you would just continue to go before us and show us your word. We thank you for the bread of life that has come to us, that we have eaten, and we have tasted, and we have seen that the Lord is good, and what that makes us do is praise you. I, I have had no part in that, God. You have done it all. You have done it all. And so you alone are immortal and invisible and wise. You have used foolish things of this world to confound the wise, to elevate your wisdom. I thank you that there is no power greater than yours. There is no will greater than yours. If you will people to save, they will be saved. Amen. To the praise and glory of God the Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing one more song.